Welcome back to the Deuce Rethread. We are part of the DVR Podcasting Network. Check us out at dvrpodcast.com. My name is Mike, and I'm here to talk about the show The Deuce. I'm here with... Jason Bailey. Oh, look, we didn't even plan that. I know, right? <laughs> just locked eyes and, you know... Those years of sexual tension took hold. <laughs> there you go. Episode three. We're getting good at this. Uh, we the are... principle is all, by the way, is the title of that episode. Say that again because it deserves it. The principle is all. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we have episode three of season one of The Deuce. This one was directed by Mr. Franco as well as starring... Starring James Franco and James Franco. Hey, so but the, not as James Franco. Right, yeah. And uh, At least they're not one? doing that in the ads. That stupid fucking thing, <laughs> like every time Eddie Murphy plays multiple roles in a movie, they're like, Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy, <laughs> and Eddie Murphy in Norbit. Uh, by Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Who directed this one? Or who wrote this one? This one is David Simon and Richard Price. All right. So we're just seeing sort of different combinations of of the the three key key writers thus far. I uh, I haven't looked to see if there are other writers in that room or if these three just I guess we'll find out when we watch the next episode. How, okay, let's talk about this just very yeah. first a brief second. And whatever you do or don't know, I'd just be interested to hear. Okay, so as they're writing a season like this, yeah, right. So we have the creators, mm-hmm. and so they are presumably kind of creating the base storyline, yeah, and most of the characters. And then we have the writers, and so how much? And obviously, it's going to be different for every show and sure. every writers' room, right? Right. But generally speaking, do you have a sense of like how much of this the thing is done before the writing starts like have they plotted all the plot points That's, of an episode okay and or... i'm not a tv expert but mm-hmm. is my understanding just based on things i've heard and read from people who make television that w- the way it usually works is like the creators write the pilot mm-hmm. the pilot gets picked up they are allowed to hire a writing staff they put that staff in the room and they do what is called breaking story. Right. And that's, from what I understand, where they together as a room, plot by plot, episode by episode, break the show down. Right. And then they have this sort of like master outline or whatever format it takes of this is what will happen in every single episode. These are the characters' arcs. You know, I'm sure they're whiteboards and they're three by five cards or there's that's all computerized by now i'm right. sure um right. there are probably entire software devoted to it yes um and then they sort of like assign out each episode to writers or writing teams to go off and like write essentially the first couple of drafts which are then usually brought back to the writer's room right. to co- to be collaboratively polished or and maybe hand it off to somebody else to polish or whatever. But that the writing credit you're seeing on screen is is usually just the writer who got that initial assignment and did the initial pass. Right. Um, right. With the understanding that it is very much a group effort. That's, right. from my understanding, I'm sure we'll hear from listeners if I'm wrong, <laughs> but my understanding is that's how it works usually on most shows. And it, there's the outside possibility that these guys are just kind of so practiced and good at what they do that you can just have richard price go write the thing 
And he doesn't need help. <laughs> no. <laughs> or well, No, but, you know, I mean... Or they, are they taking on individual scenes? I assume some yeah. of them, you know, over time, probably some people particularly like to write a, a certain character. Sure. Or, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know... I'm sure it, that happens. And I'm sure a lot of that happens in Polish, too, in terms mm-hmm. of, like, determining who's going to who's gonna take another pass at this one or that, that kind of thing. But, you know, I mean, especially with a show like this, that's this intricate with this many plot lines and characters and, and arcs happening simultaneously... Like that breaking story element, I'm sure is is pretty intricate and right. time consuming and collaborative. And they're not writing dialogue, no, but they are plotting out yeah. pretty much everything else. Yeah, and and, you, and you, everyone else is queuing off of the sort of uh, writing style that Simon and Pelicanos right, you know, you created the show with. Right, that they sort of established in that first script. Right, right, so. and that's and you have to do it that way if you're going to have uh, story arcs that stretch over a season, for instance, exactly. Let alone more than a season. Yeah, you know. And when you're talking about like I just the the character bubbles from the wire mm-hmm. is just such a touchstone sure. for me personally, mm-hmm. right? Just when I think about cre- the creative process, sure. You know, that character is just really a touchstone because that is. You know, a homeless heroin addict who's, you know, seemed to be a beggar at times. And he was never violent. Right. He wasn't really a thief. Right. Like, as a defining characteristic, you know what I mean? So there were there were other elements of that kind of stereotype, that archetype, that they didn't engage in, mm-hmm. which was part of what made the character so good. Right. Right? But this, the arc of Bubbles in that show and just the amount of, of just, oh, fucking heartbreaking humanity yeah that was granted to that character yeah is not something that happened episode for episode no that was not something that like some director got a bug up his ass for bubbles and we got like an episode of bubbles right you know like that was something that was just so oh my god anyway and then the fact that he ends up at the end of that show providing in the last episode, providing the emotional center that brings it all together. I, I like Ooh. missed up when I think about that scene. Ooh. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that, and so I feel like that, that's the kind of thing that, um, has to come from one person, mm-hmm. probably Simon mm-hmm. starting, you know what I mean? Like as an, as, but right. right. Cause yeah, but cause he knew, else, cause he knew a real bubble. Cause he knew the real bubbles. Yeah. Right. But everyone else has to buy in mm-hmm. everybody else in that room. Sure. When they're breaking all this stuff down, has to buy into what this could possibly be. Right. And in order for, you know, and that character, like you say, he provided the emotional anchor for the the finale, for yeah. the s- series finale. Yeah. But it took five seasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, they took five seasons to get, to get to that point, yeah. you know? And that is something that, that has to involve everyone. Yeah, that's a crew effort, and but it's something that was built in, was baked into the fabric of the thing from the very beginning, you know. And so I, I'm looking. For, I guess I'm kind of of keeping my eye out for what that right. character could possibly be here. Yeah, just because of how incredibly effective it was last sure. time, and although she certainly doesn't seem to have the drug problem that Bubbles did, is it the Darlene character? Um, that, I mean, that really was the big takeaway for me from episode three was 
Like the, the sort of I love her and the, I hate Larry. And I'm so scared for her. <laughs> oh my god. I'm so oh terrified my god. for her. Um yeah, that it's like that, you know, and that that she's like a genuinely sympathetic sympathetic character mm-hmm. with a good heart, um, who is enthralled to a monster. And I'm always, you know, characters in movies who like movies. Yeah. Or books about writers, <laughs> right, is yeah. an enormous red flag for me. I mm-hmm. tend to hate that stuff. You sure. know, it's very rarely well done. Sure. And even some people who do it well in certain instances don't always pull it off. Sure. You know, like sometimes it works better for me in Woody Allen movies than in others. Sure. You know, when when Mia Farrow is seeing people come out of the screen, mm-hmm. you know, like that movie for me. Yeah. It works, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, right? Yeah. But even for him, it doesn't always work. So, sure. so, so this idea of you know the the character that loves watching movies mm-hmm. and that stays and will pay a person to share the emotional experience of watching movies with them, mm-hmm. you know, like and I'm that a, that experience is like transferable. Yes, that you know yes. the kind of jo- the, the the way she yes. lights up when she talks about yes. that movie. In this moment of real, like, where she doesn't know what Larry's going to do. Yeah. But yet she can put that fear on hold to, like, light up about this movie. It's just, you know, uh, that that yeah. character on paper is a red flag for me. But yeah. in this thing is really working. And you can see when it works because this is one of those times when you, you feel like the writer is, like, Richard Price could be that guy. Yeah. You know, now his life obviously didn't work out that way. Yeah. Right, but if you li- if you read interviews with him and listen to him talk and stuff, the idea that he would want to share the experience of Mildred Pierce with someone he had any mm-hmm. kind of intellectual or emotional connection, I believe all yeah. of that. You know oh, what yeah, I mean? Yeah, 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 big time. I I just I think it's just worth mentioning because we we I think it's it's easy to just sort of talk about these people in abstract. The the the, the actor's name is Dominique Fishback. Okay. She's a relative newcomer. She's only got a few credits, but one of them is she was in four episodes of Show Me a Hero. Okay. So that's okay. that I think is pretty safe to say how she landed this role. Uh, she's phenomenal. She's just real, real, real good. Real, real, real good. Yeah. And I am worried for her, yeah. and I am having a lot of those experiences that I had around the Bubbles character in the beginning, although she has a little more agency Mm-hmm. just by the light of the fact that she's mostly sober. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Now, enthrall to this monster yeah. is a way you could also describe Bubbles, except for Bubbles' monster is, is heroin, yeah. right? And yeah. and is and is inanimate in itself, Yeah, right? Is not the same kind of threat in the way that, that Larry is. And, ooh, I don't like Larry. He's not, he's, uh, he's not oh, likable. Man. He's not very sympathetic. I don't like him right now. <laughs> and it's the threat yeah. to her that's yeah. causing it. Huge. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Wow. Uh, speaking of threads to The Wire... Uh-huh. We should mention the the Hamsterdam that has appeared in episode three of the Deuce, right? Um, and it's a it's we're gonna I'm I know we're gonna understand it better, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but the fact that we have this early scene uh, about real estate development in the lower what seemed to be about low, real estate development in the lower forties, based on Pretty what Rudy Javits Center, <laughs> right? Based on what you know the, the stuff that Rudy was saying about Times Square in the previous episode, but then it turns out that this area is being sort of set aside as a no go zone for prostitutes, right? 
Uh, yeah, but it doesn't feel like in in with Amsterdam in the wire. It sure. was the police made a decision yeah. to make essentially a drug dealing and using free zone. Yeah, with the idea being that it would just bring everybody who is interested to that to this these these mm-hmm. few this handful of blocks, right. and then those people would leave the rest of the. Law-abiding citizens alone, alone right? Yeah. The yeah. idea that you concentrate the issue, and you concentrate the issue by telling everybody that as long as they stay within these boundaries, that they're not under threat of the police. Now, in this situation, in the Deuce, we had this conversation between Rudy and a, a lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you give me a dollar, and we have attorney-client privilege. So right. a lawyer, right? So it didn't seem so much like it was a setup with the police yeah. as much as some sort of a setup above the police. Right. Well, I think the the problem is, and and apologies, dear listener, if we just weren't paying close enough attention, uh, we're not 100% clear on, you're right, exactly who that lawyer is. And the fact that they're having a conversation about John Lindsay's pros, pro, possible presidential right. run makes me think he must be some sort of lawyer who's at least connected right. to Muckety Mucks, if not working for people of power in this. Okay, and let's talk about Lindsay a little bit and what was going on then, because this is something that played into The Wire um, very much, you Mm -hmm. know, kind of city politics and all that kind of stuff. Now, in The Wire, they are inventing. Yeah. You know, it's it's not real politicians. It's based on real... Okay, but in this scenario, like, John Lindsay was the mayor, and this is all written history, and you can't rewrite it because people know about this stuff. They wrote it down. Right? Okay, so... Lindsay's elected in 65. Yeah. And he's a Republican, uh, but he's not a Republican the way like we think about Republicans now. He was a th- he was he literally called a liberal Republican, right. which was actually a thing once upon a time. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that was the early kind of the early versions of the eventual split in the party between the sort of moneyed northeastern republicans mm-hmm. the rockefellers if the you rockefellers if you will and the more culture based more southern version of the party right. that was really you know using the southern strategy we're talking about 1971 so this is after the civil rights right. act and after the voting rights act and after lyndon johnson has you know really yeah. kind of given away the dixiecrat vote yep. And the Republicans are going after the Dixiecrat vote, which is defined essentially by race, yeah. by racism. Yes, basically. <laughs> yes. Like you know, I was trying yeah. to think of like a different way to say that. That was still, you don't have to dress it up, <laughs> but it's racism. Yeah. You know, it's racial yeah. tension. Yeah. If you want to say, no, it's sure. bullshit. It's racism. It's people who. Okay, so, so at, this is this is a major split. This yeah. is you know a really uh, the last time that the parties. The, the major, the two major American political parties really redefined themselves, yeah. and it was happening kind of in this era. So John Lindsay is kind of lands in this middle ground where he's a Republican, but he, he's actively, you know, he was not. I don't, you know, not racist for a Republican in 1965. Yeah, right. Which is to say, like, no, I mean, you know, what, whatever he felt or thought privately was whatever he thought or felt privately. But this was a guy who like walked, who went to Harlem and campaigned in the Bronx and like got out there amongst all of the constituents of New York and and those communities in a great deal to a great extent carried him across the finish line in both of those elections, including the second one where he was an independent candidate. Right. Where he did not get the Republican nomination for right. mayor. 
right. uh, for, in, uh, the, for the vote in 1969 and ran as a third-party candidate and was a huge shock surprise win. And a big, de- a big part of the, the reason why he was able to campaign in those neighborhoods and actually it be actually useful and carry many of them is because many of the Democratic politicians at that time were wrapped up with the mob, yeah. right? And had taken, and, and they were a part of keeping the, the unions, which still are powerful in New York and were dramatically more, more so then, yeah. right? Were a big part of keeping the unions uh, white, yeah. And keeping the unions, you know, keeping the police unions white, yeah. keeping the fire unions white, right? And keeping those. And so you have this kind of combination of the mob and the Democratic machine really doing something in New York that they, they weren't really doing nationally, yeah. right? It's a way that kind of New York politics, there's enough power, enough money, and enough people here that it can kind of be its own world, sure, right? And so in this time, the Republican is the one who's coming in and kind of breaking some of those old chains, right? And kind of, but also having a different attitude. Like Lindsey was a happy-go-lucky dude. Yeah. He was good-looking, you know, relative to Mm -hmm. especially, you know, other like candidates for mayor at the time. And also, and this is this, and this again makes him an anomaly when you think about today's Republican Party was was a vocal and uh, well a proponent in voice and action of the social safety net that yes. believed very strongly in all of those programs and in funding public housing and in funding you know food stamps and you know and and to 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 such a degree that the that his critics and people who wanted to point fingers at those communities still pinpoint that as being the reason that the city fell into the fiscal crisis that it did right. uh, at t- during his second term and on into the the uh, the term of Abeam his successor right and go ahead it, it's a as usual that's a perspective that uh that white business people like to proclaim and not talk about the huge um tax abatements and incentives that uh, that were being given to business interests uh in to, in such a volume that they in fact contributed much more of uh, too much more of that debt in other words welfare only means welfare when it's when you're giving people food yep. it doesn't mean welfare when you're giving brown people food right it doesn't mean yes. welfare when you're giving Buildings. Enormous amount of buildings, right? Yeah. So, and that you know, and as it this is, is so secondary to the show, but we just like <laughs> we just this is such a thing that we're both fascinated by and love to talk about. So, but I mean, it is <coughs> it is as we know so far secondary sure. to the show, but it's not exactly clear no. that it's going to remain secondary. Of course not, and that's the know? thing about the a Simon series is never just about as it's a sensible subject, right? Which was clear anyway in that pilot episode that had nothing to do with pornography that had, right. you know, clear again in the last episode as we're getting into this construction subplot. Uh, and now that we're getting into whatever is happening in that office between Rudy and this big city muckety muck. Right. Um, but yeah, we're at the tail end of the, of the Lindsay administration as this shows the second, the second term for Lindsay um, that, uh, uh, and that was still, he was still of a high of enough public profile that he was being floated as a possible Democratic uh, contender for the night for the Democratic nomination in 1972 mm-hmm. um, as a Democrat. As a Democrat. So, 
And so when they say, you know, we're in 1971 and this lawyer who he's exact, who he represents, so right. it's not exactly clear, but he says, you know, Lindsay wants to be president. Mm-hmm. I mean, so anytime you say that, what you mean is, and so assume that his actions right. are, are working accordingly, right? right? And so I think it's not exactly clear yet what that means in the context of our show, how he might have been governing New York differently, yep. you know, in terms of trying to be president. But it yep. seems like that's going to come up. And yep. so as we have this kind of Amsterdam situation created, this free zone created for prostitution and a specific mention of Lindsay, yeah. you know, it'll be interesting to see how that ends up I assume that has something to do with the interplay between him and the police. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you would yeah. think because right. then after that, we see the police watching the whole thing and talking about it and kind of trying to figure out who benefits. Right. You know, as and we are. <laughs> Flanaga seems a lot less concerned about it than his partner. Yeah. You know, yeah. but it's still, there's obviously something going on. There. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Still, still things being set up at this point in the season. Yeah. Um, and you kind of got like that moment in the last episode with Cece and, and the guy, you know, with Cece and the, the fake cop. And you kind mm-hmm. of get this little bit of like quick cut action and somebody gets stabbed and, mm-hmm. and you know, Chekhov's gun goes off in the first act instead yep. of the third. But don't think that's what the show's about. This is not yeah. a dragons and fucking show. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Elsewhere in the show, um, Candy is continuing her her porn education. She seemed really upset at the diner. Yeah. When When he was like, you know... Okay, first of all, he's not putting film in the camera. So, like, yeah. everything's a yeah. fucking con. Well, Amazing. And, but... and one of my favorite things in it that you pointed out is is uh, when they go to watch the quote-unquote making of the porn film. And the, her, her first comment is, uh, the fuck is this lighting? There's no bounce. <laughs> She was learning. She was, she she was, was learning. But then it turned out he didn't need any bounce. He needed to light it in the best way for the, the guys jerking off in the audience at $40 a head. Um, yep. But yeah, right away, for pre-title sequence, she's like, she's picking brains. That's what that's that's her aim throughout this episode is picking brains. Yep. She's going to people who know about this, finding out everything they know so that she can use that to, to get herself going. Uh, you see it in that first scene with all the other uh, prostitutes who have dabbled. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see that yep. in the scene where she's going the, there, and then you see it um, when she meets up with the pornographer. Uh, David Crumholtz, terrific <laughs> yes. in that in that yes. fat suit. Great, nice work. Um, and like nobody, I mean, really, like that whole mustache, open yeah. shirt, chest hair, gold yeah. chain, com- that vital combination. He yeah. wears it well. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, and that, that's the first scene where she, you know, she's hinted at it and we can put it together, but that's the first scene where she like tells someone else. I think that's part of why she was so upset. It's the first time she said to someone else out loud, I want to learn to make movies. I mean, she said it to her mom, but I don't think she was she expecting hinted. any sort of she, support. She said from her mom. cameras and then, yeah, you right. know what I mean? Right, like, right, right. She, she puts it like in so right. many words to him. I want to learn to make movies. And his answer is, I can't fucking help you. Right. You know, right. like that's a setback. Like when you go to somebody who you think is going to do you a solid and you've like thought five steps past them doing you that solid. Right. And you find out they're right, not. Right, that's right. upsetting. Right. I think we've all, we can all relate to that uh, particular moment. But and there's some great dialogue in that scene. The fucking, um, uh, it's America, right? When do we ever leave a dollar for the other guy to pick up? And I was waiting to see because that the line "It's America," right, was in the trailer. 
you know, but they cut right after yeah, yeah, that, yeah. you know, and like, I don't want to second guess anybody's decisions, sure. but they should have left that line. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good line. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we've got the continuation of that happening. We have again, this, uh, this black woman who wants to talk to prostitutes mm-hmm. and we don't know why yet. Mm-hmm. Um, this second encounter with one made me feel like she might be a journalist of some kind, but I don't know. Well, there there was a, you know, there were more women entering college at that point than there ever had been before, mm-hmm. right? And there was that was also a very early aspect of feminism was mm. women telling their own stories yeah. and telling them to other women. Yeah. And a lot of that stuff has been lost mm. uh, because it was, you know one-off newspapers not really properly preserved yeah you know stuff that what right it's stuff that wasn't properly preserved but there was that was an important part of early feminism it was something that was talked about often and i would not be surprised to find out that somebody had the bright idea to go talk to prostitutes on the most fucking you know biggest street in america right Right. like i mean that whole thing to me is playing very well yeah um and then the the one Thing I was maybe it was a little maybe it was a touch on the nose for the mob guy to be mob lookout guy to be reading The Godfather, <laughs> but you know what? It was 1971 and everybody was reading The Godfather, and um, I right yes yeah. I, we I kind of yeah we had that con you know that yeah. a little bit of that conversation it's like but that also could be yeah you yeah. know. Um, and who else is going to read it except for, right. the, you know, the mob lookout guy, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. shit. Yeah, delusions of grandeur. <laughs> um, no, the only other thing I wanted to say about this this episode, too, um, uh, that I like, and I think this is a good idea to, for, 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 on, for big ensemble television shows and films, really. You'll sometimes see this. The idea of sort of having a periodic occasion to bring multiple strands together. Mm-hmm. So like I dug mm-hmm. the way that the opening of the hi-hat brought a lot of the, not everybody, but a lot of this group into the same room and let them sort of bounce off each other, heighten conflicts, uh, spotlight different, el- you know what I mean? It's just mm-hmm. like, that's, that's, that yep. is, if you've got a big ass cast, that's a smart thing to do every once in a while. Even you know, if their paths might not normally literally cross. If well, it just it's inconsequential. Yeah. To their paths if they cross. Right. But it doesn't. But let's put them in the same up. room yeah. every once in a while. Yeah. yeah it's a yeah. smart. It's a smart. Uh, smart play. Yeah. Well, and it also gives you an unlimited opportunity to like, how's it going? Right. How's things? Yeah. yeah you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And of course, you can do. There's a million versions of the house things scene. Yeah. Right. And so and the, and it's very productive, the house thing scene. Yeah. You know, so you have that like a regular opportunity for that. Thing. Yeah. 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 I was really struck by just how joyless the the pimps are. Yeah. And we, we've I don't know. I guess I don't know why this keeps coming back to me. The, you know, this keeps standing out to me. But in the first episode. You know, it's it seems kind of fun. Like they seem kind of like fun yeah. guys. You yeah. know. Right? Well, I think that's a pretty direct byproduct of the fact that in the first scene, in the first, I'm sorry, the first episode, we mostly saw them interacting with each other. Aha. Uh-huh. They're talking shop. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. They're talking uh-huh. shit. Right. You know, right. a cornerstone of if if you'll forgive me using the same word in, twice in the same sentence now, a cornerstone of Simon's work is guys on the corner just 
exchanging dialogue Talk and you're just talking yep. shit. Uh, yeah. even if it's not always literally a corner. And that also was part of his whole like interest in process. All those yeah. things play. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we saw those guys interacting with each other where even if they aren't joyful, they're putting on a front like they are and they're enjoying each other's company. And that's not the same sort of approach they tend to take for with the women who work for them. Okay. But this is the thing <laughs> you're married. Yeah. So am I. Yeah. Ha- you know, Blessed to be, love my wife very much. I also believe she loves me. You know? We have, I mean, I go, I go, okay. We have a good and supportive <laughs> relationship, right? Yeah. Uh, however, if, like, if, if we just had a joy, if I just made it sure it was just joyless in this house, <laughs> she just was never allowed to have a victory, Yeah. never allowed to have a moment where she was proud of herself. You know yeah. what I mean? And And I feel like, uh, I've had relationships like that before. I, they didn't start that way. Sure. But over time, we we didn't really want to allow each other s- success. Yeah. Right? And what that leads to is not really wanting to allow each other joy. Yeah. And that does not lead to long-term relationships. No. I experienced on all of them before the one I'm in now. Yeah, Because <laughs> yeah. that's how being married works, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, I wonder, like... It seems hard for me to believe that it's really just like, oh, like, I'm going to fuck you good, like, every now and then and, like, talk all this slick shit. And that's really enough. If they are living a joyless fucking existence, mm-hmm. and they're never allowed a victory. We see a moment <clears throat> where with the Darlene character where he's like, you know, he's paying you to watch movies with him. And she's like, yeah. You know, and he's like, oh, I like that movie. You know, right. I saw that movie. And like, they walk right up on the edge of like <laughs> sharing a moment yeah. together of, about anything, a nice, pleasant moment about anything. But he bails on it. Yeah. He doesn't give her that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and even though we're kind of, it's it almost seems like he's impressed by the fact that this guy's paying her to watch movies. Mm-hmm. He still won't let her actually participate even. Right. In him being impressed with her. Mm -hmm. And then you see the other character, Gloria, who's, you know, apparently done six trips through the tunnel. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, like, that's like 12 blowjobs in one night. Yeah. Like, that is a job. Yeah. That's why they call it that. A lot of work. That's why they call it a blowjob. I guess so. They don't call it a blow fun. (laughs) It seems like a lot of work. Yeah. And so... And and then she comes back and she gives him the money and she's like, you know, she basically indicates that it's, you know, she's made a lot of money, you know, or enough money or uh, whatever. Yeah. She, and he immediately, what did I do something wrong? I He's did, immediately yeah, yeah. like, it's not enough. Yeah. It's not right. It's not good enough. Yeah. It's not, it's, you know what I mean? There's so well, you can't, you can't let them get content. <laughs> I mean, I would imagine that's the philosophy. I guess, but I just, I don't understand, I guess, but I guess that's a part of like finding someone who has somewhat low expectations for the amount of joy they're Mm -hmm. allowed in their life to begin with. Here's here's my question. But I don't, but this is the thing, like, I'm also going to be, you know, talking to sex workers in this show, right? And it's one of these things where like, 
how am I going to, am I really going to start my interview with like, so do you just not expect much joy in your life? Because that seems insane. I wouldn't make that the open. (laughs) But what I really, but I think that this is as we're going here. And and of course, as we're watching, I'm thinking about how those conversations are going to go and what would be the most interesting way to approach them. Right. Right. And I really think that the thing I need to find out first is how webcams have affected pimping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that I, you oh, know, that's a legit question. because sure. you know most of my knowledge about um, about the sex workers now is comes from Twitter, right? You know, and from like other, you know, kind of reading and listening to other, right? But it comes from actually interacting with on social media people who uh, in who identify, right? As sex workers, not only are they are they working in in this industry, but they identify that way, and they the ones that most of the ones that I follow anyway talk about it philosophically, mm-hmm. like not just like intellectually, not just with agency, sure, but have philosophical conversations sometimes at 140 characters per thought, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And and. I have never heard, I've never seen anyone who's involved in that community now say, I need pimping or else I get lazy. Right? Right. I have to assume that someone alive in this day and age feels that way, mm-hmm. you know, but I'll be really interested to, and this is something, this is a whole, a gap in my knowledge, is what was the difference in 1971 right. between brothels or escort services or... Because I think, you know, cor- like straight up street corner, like I think that's in that universe generally considered um, not the, you know, not the, the most choice of options. Sure. sure. Right? Which it's not being presented as a particularly choice <laughs> option yeah. thus far in the show. And, but to me... Other than the next strain of going through the tunnel six times, it's the interaction with the pimps that yeah. seems to be the real. Because when the girls are interacting with each other, they seem to have a much more kind of, hey, Frank. Free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like, they seem to have a much more kind of coworker relationship. But they're all scared of their pimps, except for the one chick who's with the the white guy. Right. <laughs> Right, which is a really rich and funny character that I think they're wise to to only give us little Not, tiny yeah. tastes of. Um, you know, I think the, the, you're getting at a fundamental question of the profession. Mm-hmm. My question for you, and you don't have to answer it right mm-hmm. now, is are you posing this as a question about the something that is troublesome about the profession? Or are you putting it out there as something that's troublesome about the way the show is portraying the profession. I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily troublesome in either way. I think it's more just kind of I'm becoming aware of sure. gaps in my sure. in my personal kind of knowledge. Do you think the you show know? needs to show more joy in these relationships? I don't. Okay. I and certainly not. I didn't mean keep... that even to sound accusatory. I'm no, I understand curious. what you're saying. I understand yeah. what you're saying. I don't I don't they certainly don't need to do it to keep my attention. I'll just start Agreed. by saying that. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. I'll just start with that. And also, they don't need to show it if it's not honest to someone's experience. Mm-hmm. If this is, you know, if you go out and, enter, if, you know, I assume they talk to people who were engaged in the, right? I Former journalists? Yeah. Did, yeah, yeah. Right? They didn't just make yeah. all this shit up off nope. the top of their head. Nope. Right? So, 
if the if this is that's the same thing I said about you're gonna put the uh, a, a character with one guy playing twins of himself, right, which right. to me is a red flag. I walk away from projects like that. Right, it's a gimmick, right? But when you start this whole thing off by talking to a twin, yeah, it's not a gimmick. It's yeah. the you right, and so I have to assume that what we are seeing here is true. To, to the experiences that sure. they were told about. Mm-hmm. And if they that's were... That's my assumption, yes. And it, yeah. that's my assumption. And if they were told that it's a joyless fucking existence, yeah. then no, they don't need to show me a, any <laughs> joy in those relationships yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. I think it's just something where I'm becoming aware of holes in my own knowledge, things that, that are interesting to me. And also, uh, to be honest, I'm taking notes like Maggie Gyllenhaal for when I get an interview. Right. People who know more about this kind of from a firsthand perspective. Yep. You know, because I'm, I'll be really fascinated to find that out. So. Yep. All right. Uh, this has been the Deuce Rethread on the DVR Podcasting Network. This is uh, Mike and... This is Jason. See, look, we did it twice in one episode. <laughs> Join us next week. Thanks for hanging out. Thank you for listening to The Deuce on the DVR Podcast Network. You can check us out at dvrpodcast.com or on Twitter at dvrpodcast. You can email Mike and Jason at thedeucedvr at gmail.com or follow them on Twitter at thedeucedvr.